Good morning, everybody. Are you awake? Good to see you this morning. I've been over laboring. Hey, Harry, are you awake? Good to see you. Um, I've been over laboring over in um, over in the cafe, and we're doing cafe church over there, as we're doing it here this morning. And we're in the book of First Thessalonians. So, if you have your Bibles, open them up this morning to the book of First Thessalonians, and we're doing a series called Holiness and hope this morning, starting a study of First Thessalonians. Have you ever noticed how companies, they, they spend a lot of money to come up with logos so that when you see their logo, you identify the company with that logo? So I've got some logos this morning that I want to show you, and I want to see if you can identify the companies behind these logos. Ready? Here's the first logo right here. What's that company? Mercedes. All right, what about this one? Uh, that's really difficult, isn't it? Facebook. All right, what about this one? The Golden Arches. Maccas. Maccas. You know, they've done studies that have said that children as young as three years of age can identify the Golden Arches. Now, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not, but it's interesting that companies spend a lot of money in coming up with logos so that when people see that logo, they identify it with their company. You know, what is the identifying marks of authentic Christianity? What are the identifying marks of authentic Christianity? Well, that's what I want to look at this morning as we begin our study of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now, whenever you study a letter in the New Testament, you have to first ask the question, why did the author write this letter? What was the situation that the author was seeking to address in writing the letter, because every one of the letters of the New Testament are what is called situational. They were written to address certain situations. So who was Paul? Well, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees who started out persecuting Christians. And he was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus when he met Jesus, and Jesus transformed Paul's life. And then Paul went on three missionary journeys. The first missionary journey is recorded for us in Acts 13 and Acts 14. While Paul and Barnabas were at the church at Antioch, God said to them, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And then they went on this first missionary journey. You'll see the map up here. They traveled over from Antioch to Cyprus, then up through Asia Minor, as it was known at the time. And they went to all those different cities, planting churches and preaching the gospel and then they returned to Antioch by the end of Acts 14. Now, in Acts 15, the church was facing an issue. Because Paul and Barnabas had made so many Gentile disciples, uh, the, the church was wondering, do we have to make these Gentiles first become Jewish before we allow them into the church? And so the church held a council in Jerusalem where they discussed this issue, and they said, no, no, no. We don't need to first make these Gentiles Jewish. They can just come in and become believers in Jesus just by faith alone. And so they wrote a note and said, this needs to be passed out to the churches, um, the Gentile churches. But then at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas said, well, let's go, let's go and visit the churches that we planted. Let's go see how they're doing. But unfortunately, there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, you see, he wanted to take John Mark, who had gone with them on the first missionary journey, but who had returned home, and Paul said, no, 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 I'm not taking John Mark. John Mark, he, he can't handle the difficult realities of missionary life. 
And they had such a sharp disagreement over John Mark that Barnabas took John Mark and he went off his way and Paul took Silas and he travelled off his way. And then Paul and Silas went on this second missionary journey and they travelled through the interior. They travelled up through Tarsus, through Derby. And then in Acts 16, we read how they came into Lystra. And when they came into Lystra, there was this young man called Timothy. Timothy had a Greek father, but a Jewish mother who had come to believe in Jesus. And Timothy was well regarded among the brethren. And Paul was always on the lookout for young disciples who he could invest in his life in. And so he took Timothy with them. So Timothy, Silas, and Paul, they headed, continued their missionary journey. And they came over to Troas. And while at Troas one night, Paul had this dream of a Macedonian man saying, come over to us and help us. And Paul reasoned that that must be the Lord calling them to go over to Macedonia, to go over to Greece. And so they set sail and they headed over to Neapolis. And then they came into Philippi and they preached the gospel in Philippi. And God opened the heart of Lydia. God healed a slave girl from demonic possession. And you remember the Philippian jailer? Do you remember that story? About how Paul and Barnabas were in jail, but they were singing hymns. And God miraculously opened up the jail doors. And the, the, the jailer, he, he was going to take his life. But Paul said, don't. <laughs> Let me tell you about Jesus. And the Philippian jailer became a believer. But then Paul came down from Philippi and he came to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was a large port city. Had about 200,000 people, which is a lot of people for a city in that time. It was also filled with idols. People in Thessalonica worshipped Dionysius, the god of wine. But spattered throughout Thessalonica were Jewish people. And as was Paul's custom, whenever he went out on mission, the first place that he went when he came into a new city is he went to the synagogue, the meeting place of the Jews. And we read about this in Acts 17. So if you want to just, you know, keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians, but turn over to Acts 17. Acts 17. And in Acts 17, Paul comes into Thessalonica, he finds the synagogue, and we read this in verse 2 of Acts 17. And Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, so three consecutive weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. So part of Paul's missionary strategy was first to go to the Jews, to go to the synagogue, open up the Old Testament, and show how the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus, to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. But we, and we read this in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Devout Greeks were um, people who had rejected pagan idolatry and who were along, walking alongside of the, of the Jews in the synagogue trying to learn about the one true God. So these people were persuaded about Jesus, and they joined Paul. And it says not few of the leading women, these women who were of high standing in society, also joined Paul. Well, next we read what happened. Look down in verse 5. We read this. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob 
and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was obviously a believer in Jesus. He has a Greek name, so he's obviously a Greek believer. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Obviously, Jason had uh, looked after Paul and Timothy and Silas. Look down in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that, Phil. The preaching of the gospel turns the world upside down. Isn't that fantastic? Or maybe it turns it right side up, (laughs) depending on your perspective. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, King Jesus. You know, whenever you preach the gospel and you preach Jesus, it will offend people. Because you're saying that you need to submit to the lordship of Jesus and not other things. And so people will be offended by that. And you'll have opposition Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they made Jason and this church pay this bond so that they wouldn't cause a disturbance. And so can you get what happened here? This small church in Thessalonica is founded maybe within three weeks or maybe it was a little bit longer, but in a very short period of time. And as soon as it was founded, there was this opposition that came against this church in Thessalonica. And Paul has to leave. Paul and and, and Silas, it says in the next verse, and Timothy had to leave by night. They were worried that their presence would cause a trouble for this little fledgling church. And so Paul and Timothy, they head down to Berea. Do you remember the Bereans, what it says about the Bereans? The Bereans were more noble because they actually searched the Scriptures as Paul preached. Do you have your Bible out this morning? Are you searching the Scriptures as I preach to you, making sure that what I'm saying to you is actually correct? That's what made the Bereans noble, is they actually had the Bible open themselves and were checking what Paul was saying was true. Well, then Paul came down to Athens, and when he came into Athens, he had this amazing opportunity to speak to the intellectuals of the time at Mars Hill. He had the opportunity to address the Greek philosophers of the time. But all the time while Paul was in Athens, his heart was actually in Thessalonica. He actually was burdened. He was concerned about this small church that had only been planted in a small amount of time and who had been undergoing persecution and opposition. We read about this over... In the book of First Thessalonians, turn back in your Bibles now to First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. See, Paul was burdened for this church burden for this church. What was happening in the church at Thessalonica? And so Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they hatched a plan. From Athens, they said, let's send back Timothy. We'll send him back to Thessalonica. Look down in your Bibles in chapter 3, verse 1. They said, therefore, Paul says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in faith. So they sent Timothy back 
to Thessalonica to find out what was going on in Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas then left from Thessalonica and they headed on to Corinth. And when they got to Corinth, Timothy came. Timothy came and he came with good news. Look down your Bibles in verse 6, Paul says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. He brought a good report of what was happening in this little church in Thessalonica. You see, Paul, this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians is very different to other letters that Paul writes that are in the New Testament. See, many of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he's writing to correct things that are in the church. Like his letter to the Galatians, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How can you abandon the gospel? The Galatian church was abandoning the gospel and adding works to the gospel. And so he writes to them the letter of Galatians about justification by faith. And, you know, the church in Colossae, they were adding to their Christology, Greek philosophy. And so Paul writes to them in, in, in his letter to the Colossians about the supremacy and greatness of Christ. When you look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, it's not like that. It doesn't have this correcting tone. It has this beautiful pastoral tone of thanksgiving. When Paul hears how they're going, he is just overwhelmed with thanksgiving. In fact, you can actually divide the book into two sections. You have the first section, I've got it right here, thanksgiving, chapters 1 to 3. And then you have in the next section of the book, faithfulness, a call to faithfulness in chapters 4 and 5. But Paul's call to faithfulness is not like other times when he actually rebukes people and he actually, you know, goes, you know, just convicts. It's not like that. It's more pastoral. It's more like Paul is saying, you guys are doing well and I just want you to do it more and more and more. You know, I feel this way about our church, our church here at City Reach. I feel like I have to bring a stick. I feel like I can just encourage you. You guys are doing well. Let's keep on doing it more and more and more. That's the tone of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians because in this letter, Paul outlines and says, you Thessalonians have the distinctive marks of authentic Christianity. What are those distinctive marks of authentic Christianity? Well, let's get, into the, let's get into the letter proper this morning. So open up your Bibles, look down in verse 1. Look down your Bibles in verse 1. We read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, Paul starts this letter the typical way you would begin or write a letter in the first century. You know, when we write letters, what we typically do is we, you know, we uh, address our readers, dear such and such, and then we sign off our name at the end, yours faithfully, such and such. But Paul here, he follows the letter convention writing in the first century, where he introduces himself, Paul Silvanus. The word Silvanus is just the Roman name for Silas, Paul Silvanus and Timothy. You know, I love this. This letter is mostly by Paul, but it's co-authored by Silas and Timothy. And I love this. Timothy, Paul always saw the ministry as a team ministry. He always saw the need to invest in others and build up others. 
and train up the next generation. And he gives Silas and Timothy an opportunity to join him in his letter-writing ministry to the church of the Thessalonians. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. In the first century, there were many different um, assemblies or ecclesias, churches. You know, the citizens of a country could be called in a town, they could be called as they gathered together, they could be called an ecclesia. They would blow the trumpet, and people would run out and they would gather together, and that would be an ecclesia, a church, an assembly of people. But the distinct thing about this assembly in, the, in Thessalonica is the church is that they are assembled in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are connected to God the Father through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This week as I was studying this verse, the word that really convicted me was the word constantly. I can imagine, can you imagine Paul, Timothy and Silas, as they are traveling around, they're having constant prayer meetings, gathering together, praying for this Thessalonian church, praying for Jason, praying for the leading women, praying for the devout um, Greeks, praying for them, praying, Lord, I pray for them in the midst of their persecution, help them stay strong. You know, it really convicted me about their constancy in prayer. You know, as a Pharisee, Paul would have prayed three times a day. He would have prayed morning, noon, and before he went to bed. But actually, Paul, as a Christian, he says now in Ephesians 6, he says, we need to pray unceasingly. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's easy for Paul to have such a commitment to prayer because, you know, Paul was in full-time Christian service. You know, Pastor Timon, we expect you to pray all the time because, you know, you're a full-time pastor, so you, that's probably what you do all day, is you probably just sit around and pray all day long. That's probably what you do. Well, do you know, Paul, actually, he was a tent maker when he went to Thessalonica. He says, I actually worked with my own hands because I didn't want to be a burden to you. And yet he says he prays constantly, prays unceasingly. You know, in our skeptical age... I don't think we are committed to prayer because we really don't necessarily believe that it works. <laughs> we mightn't believe that it works. But Paul, Paul, even though he was separated from the, Thessalonians, from, from the Thessalonians, he knew that there was one thing he could do. He could get on his knees and he could pray for them. This week, why don't you have a look in this letter? Okay, here's a bit of an assignment for you. Right? Have a look in this letter at the prayers that Paul writes out for the Thessalonians. Have a look at them and ask yourself, do you pray like he prayed for them? I'll give you a bit of a hint. There's one at the end of chapter 3 and there's one at the end of chapter 5. Have a little look at those prayers that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. But notice in verse 3, Paul then unpacks what he thanks God for. We, thank, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you mark your Bibles, mark those three things. We remember your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. Now, this is not the first place that you will find in Paul's writing these triad, triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. 
It's also found over in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. The greatest of these is love. Now, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he instructs them on the primacy of love because here was a church that was puffed up in their use of spiritual gifts. They're all trying to outdo one another in their exercise of spiritual gifts. And so Paul writes to them about the primacy of love. He says, if I speak with the tongues of angels and of men and I have not love, I am what? I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I could preach to you and have a gift of preaching, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And Paul says, I might have prophetic powers where I'm able to understand all mysteries, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And he says, I might be able to say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, but if I don't have love, I'm what? I'm nothing. And Paul says, what is love? Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You see, Christian love is a verb. Christian love is about giving your life for others. You know, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have what? You have love one for another. And notice over in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You know, it's amazing that when there's a lot of opposition outside of the church, it causes the church to really press in together and love one another. I wish I could take you all to Nepal. In Nepal, to be a Christian costs you something. Christianity is outlawed in Nepal. But our Nepalese brothers, they really know how to love one another. There's no competition between pastors. They share their resources with one another, even though they're so poor. They really love one another. Love is a distinctive mark of authentic Christianity. But notice in these lists between 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians that there's a, there's a bit of a difference in the list. Over in 1 Corinthians, you have faith, hope, and love. In 1 Thessalonians, you have faith, love, and hope. Now, it's interesting that in both of those lists, what comes first? Faith. All right, we can speak up. What comes first? Faith. Good. Faith comes first. And I think that's because of the primacy of faith. If you don't have faith, you won't have love and you won't have hope. There's a primacy to faith. We need to have faith in Christ. And notice Paul talks about your work of faith. Now, he's not saying that we need to work our way to God. Paul would again and again affirm that we are saved by faith apart from works. Now, what's important here is to notice the little, little word between work and faith, and that is of <laughs> your work that comes out of faith. You see, as the reformers used to say, they would say, you are saved by faith in Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. True saving faith will result in works. It will result in a changed life. If you believe that Jesus is Lord of your life, 
then that will change the way that you live. Faith will result in works. But as I said, once again, there is a difference between 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, love. 1 Thessalonians, faith. Are you with me? Faith, love, hope. What's the difference? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that for the Corinthians, what was missing in their church was love. And so Paul puts it last. And maybe for the Thessalonians, what they needed further instruction in was actually hope. Hope. Now they were, Paul does praise them for their steadfastness of hope. That in the midst of their persecution, they are standing fast. They are persevering and standing up for Christ in the midst of this opposition and persecution that they're suffering. But there was something missing in their hope. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. It may have been that what, was, what happened in the Thessalonian church is that some of the believers had died either naturally or maybe because of persecution. And so the Thessalonian believers were worried that those believers who had died would miss out on the resurrection and the return of Christ. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, that's not going to happen. He fills in their hope. He says, no, what's going to happen is when Christ comes back, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. When the Lord descends with a loud cry and the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will meet them together in the air. And he says, so encourage one another with these words. See, what I want to get across to you today is that Christian hope is not an abstract hope. Christian hope, oh, can you come with me right now? Christian hope is in an event. It's in an event. It's not an abstract hope. And this is important. In 2016, my family and I, uh, we, we were coming to the end of 2016. Hannah was in year 12, and we wanted to go on one last big family holiday. So Tegan planned this huge family holiday to New Zealand. We'd go around the North Island and the South Island and, you know, see the hobbits and, like, smell the boiling mud and all of that sort of stuff. It was a great holiday that Tegan had planned, and this was for the end of 2016. And because we had this holiday, this concrete thing to look forward to, through term four of 2016, which is always a difficult term, is it not? Term four, teachers, you know what I'm talking about. It's a difficult term to get through. Because we had this concrete thing to look forward to, we could get through whatever came our way. And you see, as believers, we have a concrete hope. It's not an abstract hope. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. Atheists have no hope. Ultimately, atheists believe that we're just machines and one day we're going to die. One day all the stars are going to go out and everything's going to go black in the universe. Christians have true hope. Our hope is in Jesus that one day 
at the Lord, the trumpet is going to sound. And at the command of the Lord, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and we who are alive are going to meet the Lord in the air. What a hope! What a hope! And it's a concrete hope that we have. Faith, hope, and love. These three distinctive marks of a Christian. Now, I've got a little chair here up on this uh, screen right here. See this little chair right here? Now, if you have a little stool like this, and one of the legs is a little bit shorter than the others, what's going to happen? It's going to be unbalanced, right? When it comes to the Christian life, you need to have a balance of faith, hope, and love. Obviously, you need the primacy of faith in Christ. If you don't have faith, you won't have love and you won't have hope. But also, I've noticed that some people have faith and they have love, but there's something missing in their hope. You know, what has happened over the last probably 30 years in theology is because this whole area of end times, eschatology, because it is a little bit complex to understand, Christians have sort of tended to shy away and say, that's not important. I don't need to think about that. That's not what the Apostle Paul would say. He would say, my hope is in the return of Jesus. That's where my hope is found. Now, some other Christians, they have faith, they have hope. They're fixated with the return of Jesus, <laughs> but they don't have love. Love for other believers. You see, these three marks are the three distinctive marks of authentic Christianity. Faith in Christ, hope, and love. Are they found in your life? Are they found in your life? Now, how do you actually develop faith, hope, and love? Well, fortunately, the answer is in the Bible. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians and look down in verse 3. And there's a prepositional phrase right at the end of verse 3 that really shows us. Paul says, He remembers before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Notice this, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, you don't increase your faith by white-knuckling it in and by telling yourself, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe. The way that you increase your faith is by looking to the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus and His sufficiency and greatness. The way that you increase your love is by looking to the Lord Jesus and seeing how he died sacrificially for you. And since he died for you, giving his life for you, you're then motivated to give your life for others. The way you increase your hope is looking to the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, or the angels said to the disciples, just as you've seen Jesus come and go into heaven, you will see him one day return in the same manner. That's how you increase your faith, hope, and love. So what part of your, your Christian life is out of balance this morning? What part of your Christian life is out of balance this morning? You know, companies spend a lot of money coming up with logos so that when you see that logo, it identify, you identify that company. And what should be the identifying marks of authentic Christianity is a faith 
faith in Jesus that really plays itself out in a distinctive, different lifestyle. Love, sacrificial love for others and a hope that even though things are going terrible for you, you still have this hope that Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our study this morning, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Lord, we do pray that as we look to Jesus, the object of our faith, our trust in him, our dependence on him will grow because he is so trustworthy. (laughs) I think of Abraham, who it says in Romans 4, he did not waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Lord, I pray that as we come to the end of this service and as we give glory and honor to God, Lord, I pray as we worship Christ, our faith in the sufficiency and awesome power of Christ will grow. I pray, Father, that our love will increase for one another. Pray that our hope will grow. That we won't be a people who are tossed to and fro by different circumstances, but because we know the end of the story, because we have a firm foundation, whatever comes our way, we will be able to stand for Christ. When persecution, suffering, difficulty comes, we'll stand for Christ because we have a firm foundation for our hope. Thank you, Lord. We just praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.